0: Chapter 6 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, the Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 6 Michael's Introduction to All the Miss Dowlings. Sir Matthew feeds him with his own hand, and presents him to all his most valued friends. Having given a sharp rap on the door, Peggy was told to come in by the voice of Mademoiselle Beaujoie, whereupon she threw the door wide open before her and stood with Michael Armstrong in her hand, in the presence of three grown-up Miss Dowlings, three middle-sized Miss Dowlings, two little Miss Dowlings, and their French governess. The five youngest all rushed as by one accord towards Michael. "'What a pretty little boy!' was exclaimed by two or three of them. "'Are you come to play with us? May not we have a holiday, mademoiselle?' "'What an elegant-looking creature!' exclaimed the eldest Miss Dowling, who with her two grown-up sisters had come into the room for the advantage of practicing duets on a venerable pianoforte, totally out of tune, and whose loudest note could by no means compete with the shrill accents of the animated group who inhabited the apartment. "'Did you ever see a prettier boy, Harriet?' "'Who is he, I wonder?' replied the young lady she addressed. "'How he blushes,' said the governess, tittering. "'What's your name, dear?' demanded Miss Martha, the third daughter of the Dowling race. Michael Armstrong, ma'am, replied the boy looking up with an air of surprise, for Miss Martha, queer-looking as she was, spoke kindly. And queer-looking as she was, Michael met her eye with pleasure, for that too spoke kindly, though it was neither large nor bright. Martha Dowling was, in truth, about as ugly as it was possible for a girl of seventeen to be, who was neither deformed nor marked by the smallpox, short, fat, SNUB-NOSED, RED-FACED, WITH A QUANTITY OF SANDY HAIR THAT, IF NOT RED, LOOKED VERY MUCH AS IF IT INTENDED TO DO SO. EYES OF A LIGHT, VERY LIGHT GRAY, AND WITHOUT ANYTHING WHATEVER IN EXTERNAL APPEARANCE TO RECOMMEND HER, EXCEPT A SMOOTH, PLUMP, NECK AND SHOULDERS, WITH HANDS AND ARMS TO MATCH, WHICH IN TRUTH WERE VERY FAIR AND NICE-LOOKING, AND A SET OF WELL-FORMED, STOUT WHITE TEETH. WHAT MADE THE UNLUCKY APPEARANCE OF THIS YOUNG LADY THE MORE REMARKABLE WAS THE CONTRAST IT PRESENTED TO THE REST OF HER FAMILY. All the other young people were, like both their parents, more than common tall, for their respective ages, and, like most other tall young people, rather thin, so that Lady Dowling was apt to indulge herself by declaring that, though certainly some of her children might be considered prettier than the rest, there was not one of the whole set, except that poor vulgar Martha, who was not most particular genteel-looking. Genteel-looking, she certainly was not, nor graceful, nor beautiful in any way and the consequence was, that father, mother, brothers, and sisters, were almost heartily ashamed of her This was a misfortune, and she felt it to be so pretty sharply, for poor vulgar Martha was far from being a stupid girl, but in her case, as in a million of others, it might be seen that adversity, though, like the toad, ugly and venomous, weareth a precious jewel in its head. For of all her race, she was the only one whose heart was not seared and hardened by the ceaseless operation of opulent self-indulgence. She felt that she was rather an object of pity than of admiration, of contempt than of envy, of dislike than of love. This is severe schooling for a young girl's heart, but if it produced not reckless indifference, or callous insensibility, it often purifies, softens, and even elevates the character." Such were its effects on Martha Dowling. That coarse-seeming exterior contained the only spark of refinement of which the Dowling family could boast. Never did a high-born Hidalgo in Spain's proudest days inculcate among his race the immeasurable importance of pure descent with more ceaseless or more sedulous earnestness than did Sir Matthew the omnipotence of wealth among his. Every child was taught, as soon as its mind became capable of receiving the important truth, that not only was it agreeable to enjoy and cherish all the good things which wealth can procure, but that it was their bounden and special duty to make it visible before the eyes of all men that they could, and that they did, have more money spent upon them than any other family in the whole country. But Martha felt that all this could not apply to her. Strange to say, the only tie resembling affection which prevented the total isolation of this poor girl among her family was that which existed between her hard-natured father and herself. But it was a sentiment not easy to analyze. In Sir Matthew it probably arose at first from his having been told that the little girl was very like him, and on hers from his being the only person in the house who had ever bestowed a caress upon her. In both cases cause and effect went on increasing. Martha's face, saving its expression, was incontrovertibly like her father's and, for that reason or from the habit it had at first created, her father, though rather ashamed to confess it, was certainly very fond of her. That, as a child, she should love him in return was almost inevitable, but that, as she advanced in years, she should feel for the being the most completely formed by nature to be hateful to her, an affection the most unchanging and devoted, had something of mystery in it less easy to be explained. Yet so it was, martha dowling adored her hard-hearted vicious unprincipled illiterate vulgar father as heartily as if he had been the model of everything she most admired and approved nay it may be that she loved him better or at any rate more strongly still for it was rather with fanaticism than devotion or like the pitying fondness with which a mother dotes on a deformed child who sees only that because it is less lovable it has more need of love than the rest It was not, however, on the same principle that Sir Matthew's affection for his ugly daughter increased as years rolled on, for he saw that though as a child she had been like him she was now grown very plain, and in company he felt almost as much ashamed of her as Lady Dowling herself. But he could not mistake her love and true affection, nor resist the charm of feeling that at least there was one being in existence who would have cherished him, even if he had not been the great man he was. In private, he scrupled not to yield to this feeling, and certainly derived considerable pleasure from it. But before witnesses, he always joined in the family tone respecting poor Martha, and scrupled not to push her on one side upon all occasions on which any display of Dowling elegance was contemplated. It was this ugly Martha Dowling who now startled little Michael with her voice of kindness, and, notwithstanding all her lady mother said about the horrid vulgarity of her manners, for Martha had a sweet and gentle voice. The child looked up at her, and with the weakness that appeared constitutionally peculiar to him, his eyes were immediately filled with tears. Yet Michael was not a whimpering boy, either. Many had seen him harshly treated, for he had worked almost from babyhood in the cotton factory, but nobody had ever seen him cry under it. But if his mother or his poor sickly brother touched his little heart, either with joy or tenderness, He would weep and laugh both with very infantine susceptibility. So it was with him now, for when Martha added, with a good-humored smile, And what brings you here, Master Armstrong? He laughed outright as he replied, Indeed, ma'am, I ain't Master Armstrong, and I don't know a bit what I be here for. This speech, though addressed to Martha, being heard by all, the contrast between his appearance and his language considerably excited the curiosity of the two eldest Miss Dowlings. "La, how he talks!" "I thought he was a gentleman by his jacket, didn't you, Arabella?" said Miss Harriet. "Yes, to be sure I did," replied the eldest sister, "but I am sure he is not, with that horrid way of speaking. What did you bring him here for, Peggy?" continued the young lady, with an air of authority. "Because master bid me, miss," was the satisfactory reply. "Well, to be sure that is queer!" "I suppose he's the son of somebody or other, or papa would never have sent him in to us. It is not at all his way to patronize vulgarity. Where do you live, young gentleman? Michael looked very much as if he were in danger of laughing again, but he did not, and replied very demurely, In Mr. back kitchen, ma'am, in Hoxley Lane. Though the answer was addressed to the inquirer, his eye turned to Martha as he uttered it, as if anxious to see how she bore it, but he encountered a look that altogether puzzled him. For though it was at least as kind as before, there was uneasiness in it and she looked round her as if uncomfortable, doubtful of what would happen next. She did not, however, wait long for the result. For Miss Sophia, Miss Louisa, and Miss Charlotte, the three middling-sized Miss Dowlings, who had approached very nearer to the little boy, and were even growing so familiar that Miss Charlotte had taken hold of one of his dark curls, were severely and suddenly drawn off by the respective hands of their two eldest sisters and the governess. "'Then he is not a young gentleman after all,' said Miss Sophia." "'La, how funny!' exclaimed Miss Louisa. "'Where did he get his clothes from?' interrogated Miss Harriet. "'Most likely he stole them,' responded Miss Arabella. "'Why, tis jacket,' ejaculated the observing Miss Charlotte. "'Oh, quelle horreur!' cried the governess, driving her pupils all before her to the other end of the room. At this moment, and before any more active measures could be resorted to for the safety of the young ladies, the door of the schoolroom was again thrown open, and the portly person of Sir Matthew appeared at it, accompanied by the globe-like figure of Dr. Crockley. "'Good morning, young ladies,' said the proud father, looking round him, and immediately entering into the jest that he saw was afloat. "'How do you like the young beau I have sent you?' "'Good gracious papa,' exclaimed the elegant and much-admired Miss Arabella. HE IS A BEGGAR BOY AND A THIEF. Sir Matthew and his friend Dr. Crockley both burst into such a shout of laughter at this Sally that it was a minute before either of them could speak. But at length the knight, turning to the doctor, said, Leave my girls alone, Crockley, for finding out what's what. I don't believe there's one of them that would have found that fellow out if I had wrapped him up in the king's own mantle. They are sharp enough, there is no doubt of that, replied his friend. "'But I must say you don't perform your charitable acts by halves, Sir Matthew. "'You have dressed up the little scamp so superbly "'that nothing but the vulgar dark complexion "'could make one know that he was not one of your own.' "'Why, yes, there is some difference in the skins, I must say,' "'replied Sir Matthew, looking with most parental complacency "'on the fair skins, flaxen hair, and light eyelashes of his race. "'Difference, indeed! Tis Africa and Europe. "'And is it not remarkable, Sir Matthew, to see the look of him?' Hasn't he got a sort of slavish, terrified air with it? I tell you what, Sir Matthew, I should not be at all surprised to find, when the march of philosophy has got a little farther, that the black look comes along with the condition, and that the influence of wealth and consequence is as quickly shown upon the external appearance of men, women, and children as a field of clover upon the inferior animals. And why not? It is quite natural, perfectly conformable to the analogy. "'That, by accurately tracing cause and effect, "'may be followed through all creation. "'You have a head, Sir Matthew, for that sort of thing. "'You can understand me if nobody else can.' "'The little doctor knew that this was one of the soft points "'at which his wealthy neighbor was assailable. "'Sir Matthew loved to be assured that his head was of a superior fabric. "'But why, Papa, should you send a nasty beggar-boy to us "'with Duo's clothes on?' inquired the intelligent Louisa. Before he replied to this, the knight exchanged a glance with his friend, which seemed to say, "'That's the right sort. She's in the clover-field.' "'I have taken him in for charity, my dear,' replied the knight, with a sort of pomposity that seemed of a new pattern. The young ladies had never seen papa look so before. Martha, from having found herself rather more frequently the object of Dr. Crockley's jokes than she desired, had, on his entering the room, retired to the window But now she came up to her father and quietly, as often happened, almost unnoticed, kissed his hand. "'For charity!' exclaimed the fair-haired Arabella, moving a step or two farther away from the object of this extraordinary caprice. "'La, papa! Why don't you send him to the hospital?' Dr. Crockley laughed outrageously. "'That girl, Sir Matthew!' he said when he had recovered his voice. That girl is beyond all comparison the most thoroughly born lady that ever I happened to hit upon, and that is saying something, I promise you. She hasn't a commonplace vulgar notion in her from top to toe. It is what I call the physiology of wealth. It is upon my soul. It is a study, a science. I have not got to the end of it, but I am certain I shall make a system out of it, and you'll be able to follow me, there's some comfort in that. I declare to God that if I had not found you in the neighborhood, I should have bolted. I cannot exist without occasionally bringing my mind in contact with superior intellect. You find that too, Sir Matthew? I'm sure you do. Sir Matthew assured him that he did, very much. And then, pulling a Belinda lock that adorned the olive-colored throat of Mademoiselle Bourgeois, he asked her if she had ever seen a brat taken in for charity so nicely dressed as that little blackguard. Brat? "'Ça veut dire petit vaurien?' "'No, my honour, Sir Mathieu, never. "'You are without no revel de most.' Whilst the French governess struggled to find a word sufficiently expressive of her admiration, and, if possible, with some little meaning besides, Sir Matthew took the liberty of pinching her ear while he whispered into it, "'What, you little rogue, what?' She gave him a Parisian ayad, by no means an unkind one, and turned away, while the two smallest Miss Dowlings ran up to her, and in the jargon in which their mamma and papa delighted, demanded, Si papa voulait let them jouer avec the little beggar boy? This question, repeated nearly in the same words by Mademoiselle Bourgeois to the knight, appeared to cause him some perplexity, and after reflecting upon it for a minute, he turned to consult his philosophical friend. I say, Crockley, what do you think of that? Then, lowering his voice, he added, you comprehend the job, doctor. Which will do the best to help it-parlour or kitchen, schoolroom or factory, drawing-room or scullery? All and every of them, replied his friend in the same low tone, but very decisively. No doubt in nature about that, Sir Matthew. He must be here, there, and everywhere, and the thing will fly like mad. You are always right, Crockley. There is nobody like you, replied the grateful knight. "'cordially slapping the round shoulders of his friend. "'I twig, I twig, and so it shall be, by the Lord Harry. "'You are as rapid as lightning, Sir Matthew. "'I remember no instance of a cerebral formation "'so absolutely perfect as yours. "'Now then, let us visit my lady, shall we? "'I am as dry as a brick dust, "'and it is about lunchtime, I take it. "'Bring the boy with you, "'and introduce him before the servants in style.' "'So I will, that's it. Hi, twig, Crockley. "'Go, Martha, and see if the luncheon is laid.' The report being favorable to the wishes of the gentlemen, the party, consisting of the three eldest Miss Dowlings, their papa and the doctor, left the young ladies and their governess to dine while with little Michael, who was ordered to follow, they all repaired to the dining-room, where a well-covered table awaited them. Her ladyship and Mr. Augustus were already there, and both expressed exactly the degree of curiosity which the knight desired, as to who the little gentleman might be whom they brought with them. Miss Dowling and Miss Harriet Dowling burst into a loud laugh. Sir Matthew, looked towards the sideboard, and seeing two servants in attendance there, spoke as follows. "'My dear Lady Dowling, I must bespeak your munificent charity and universal benevolence in favour of this little unhappy boy. His mother is a widow, and—and something, I forget exactly what, is very unhappy about her.' and this little boy behaved remarkably well. Here Sir Matthew broke off in some degree of embarrassment, not wishing particularly to impress upon his lady's mind that it was his tender care for the Lady Clarissa Shrimpton which had first introduced the fortunate factory boy to his notice. But he passed over all that very skilfully and ended his harangue by saying, I know perfectly well, my dear Lady Dowling, that there is not in the whole world so amiable a person as yourself and therefore I entertain not the slightest doubt that the benevolence which warms my heart on this occasion will communicate itself to yours. Lady Dowling raised her light eyebrows and her still lighter eyelashes into a look of the most unmitigated astonishment, and remained thus for a while, contemplating the extraordinary spectacle of one of the handsomest boys she had ever seen dressed in a style of unquestionable fashion, and presented to her as a being so deplorably miserable as to have excited the pity of her husband. The first clear and distinct idea that suggested itself was the necessity of inquiring respecting this beautiful child's mother and of finding out whether she might not happen to be beautiful too. The next arose from the sudden recognition of her own son's own clothes, and the complexion of the lady became extremely florid. I should like to know where he got those clothes from, she said in accents that by no means spoke composure of spirit. My dearest love, "'replied the most amiable "'and the most polite of husbands. "'That is entirely my doing. "'You have known me long enough, my sweetest, "'to be aware that I never do anything by halves. "'I saw that little fellow ragged and wretched, "'and I clothed him. "'Well, I must say, I do think,' "'began her ladyship, "'when Sir Matthew, seating himself at the table, "'thrust a knife and fork "'into the very centre of a pigeon pie, "'and, accompanied the act by a sound, "'something between a slight cough and a grunt, which in language matrimonial was known to mean, You had better hold your tongue and mind your business. Whereupon Lady Dowling sat down too, but her fair complexion was rather more rosy than was becoming, and it was in no very sweet voice that she said to Martha, who ventured to take a chair next to her, Do get a little farther, child, can't you? You know I hate to be crushed and crammed up so. Here Dr. Crockley, who had already fallen with vehemence upon a cold ham, stopped for a moment, and laughed vehemently. My dear madam, you are of the slight and elegant order yourself, and you don't make allowance for poor people who are as fat and roundabout as Miss Martha and I. We can't squeeze ourselves into an eggshell, Miss Martha, can we? Her slim sisters tittered, and the witty Augustus observed that, to be sure, Martha did not look more like a collar of Oxford brawn than anything else in creation. Meanwhile the meal proceeded, and little Michael continued to stand half way between the door and the table as fixedly as if he had taken root there. Martha was, in general, very philosophically inclined to let all things round her take their course. But she sat exactly opposite to the object of her father's benevolence, and there was something in the expression of his eye as it rested upon the dainties before him that was more than she could bear. "'May I give the little boy something to eat, papa?' said she, addressing her father in a timid voice. How shall we manage about that, Crockley? whispered Sir Matthew into the ear of the doctor who sat close to him. Cram him, cram him, Sir Matthew. You'll find it like oil on the surface of water, spreading far and wide, replied his counsellor, whispering in return. Let the boy have to boast of his high feeding, and it will do more good than if you were to endow him with lands and houses and keep him lean. Say you so, my wise man. Faith, then, the matter is easy enough. "'for I believe Dowling Lodge is rather celebrated "'for its superfluity of good cheer. "'We'll have him gasping with indigestion within a week. "'See if we don't.' "'Then raising his voice, he answered the petition of Martha "'by repeating her words. "'May you give the little boy something to eat?' "'Then added with a laugh, "'By all manner of means, Miss Martha, "'and, taking some half-demolished fragments off his own plate, "'he may boast of feeding as well as his master.' HERE, MASTER FACTORY, CATCH. And, so saying, the benevolent owner of Dowling Lodge skilfully cut the air with half a pigeon, which, taking exactly the direction he intended, struck Michael in the middle of the forehead. Whatever might be the effect of this liberality of heart and hand-out of doors, Sir Matthew had every reason to be satisfied with the result within. The whole Dowling family, with the exception of stupid Martha, burst into a simultaneous shout of delight while Dr. Crockley clapped his hands and vociferated, "'Bravo!' as loud as he could scream. Just at this moment, the great bell at the front door, and it was a very great bell, resounded along passage and halls with prodigious clamor. This is a sound which produces, in those who hear it, emotions varying according to their varying temperaments. Genuinely fine, poco curante people, if they hear it, heed it not. Fussy folks, of whatever rank or station, prepare their looks and their books, themselves and their belongings, to receive the threatened visitation advantageously. But in a mansion of such professional display as Dowling Lodge, a ring at the doorbell is an event of serious importance. In such an establishment, the luxuries or even the comforts of the family are confessedly of no importance at all, when placed in competition with the display of their grandeur, and upon the present occasion, THE WHOLE FAMILY HASTENED TO LEAVE THEIR UNFINISHED REPAST IN ORDER TO RECEIVE THE WELCOME SPECTATOR OF THEIR FINE CLOTHES AND FINE FURNITURE IN THE DRAWING-ROOM. MY LADY DOWLING AND HER TWO LIGHT-COLORED ELDER DAUGHTERS, SIR MATTHEW, HIS ELDEST SON, AND HIS LEARNED FRIEND, SUCCEEDED IN REACHING THEIR RESPECTIVE SOFAS AND bergères HALF A MINUTE BEFORE THE DOOR WAS THROWN OPEN, AND LADY CLARISSA SHRIMPTON, MISS BROTHERTON, MISS Mogg, AND MR. Osmond NORVAL WERE ANNOUNCED. Great, of course, and very zealous was the joy expressed by the Dowling family at the sight of their illustrious friend and her cortege. Miss Brotherton was, indeed of herself, or rather of her purse, a personage pretty sure of being well received everywhere. But even Miss Mogg was, in Yankee phrase, well shaken, and Mr. Osmond Norville, gazed at by the young ladies, as an emanation from the rays that encircle the brow of Apollo, while even the exquisite Augustus ventured, in compliment to his titled patroness, to shake him too, though he had never been introduced to him at Oxford. But the feelings of Sir Matthew at this prompt reappearance of his fair and noble friend were something vastly different from anything his family could participate in, nor did Lady Clarissa mistake them. There was a look that spoke infinitely more than any tongue could utter, and a meaning in the silent pressure of the hand confirming the idea, which had often recurred to her during the night, that it would soon be necessary to make Sir Matthew understand the exact nature and extent of the flattering, but perfectly innocent preference she was conscious of feeling for him. This first delightful, but somewhat agitating moment over, Lady Clarissa hastened to explain the purpose of her visit. "'You guess why I am come, do you not, Sir Matthew?' she said, pointing to Mr. Osmond Norville. "'Permit me to present to you and your highly educated family this young votary of the muses,' who, if my judgment errs not, may fairly claim competition with the first poets of the age. Nor should we, of this remote neighborhood, be insensible to the honor of being the first to assist in pluming the yet unfledged wing, which shall one day bear him aloft in the Empyrean regions of eternal fame. Nothing could be more touching than the manner in which Mr. Osmond Norval pressed his hat between his two hands, and bowed, low, 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 to the noble lady who thus announced him. Sir Matthew, with a stride which, for the vigorous distance it carried him, might have been compared to that of the knave of hearts, approached the young man, and strenuously pressing one of his slender hands in both his own capacious fists, attested the value he attached to her ladyship's introduction by saying, Mr. Osmond Norville, I will not deny that I do occasionally myself offer tribute at the Muses' shrine, and that being in some sort a of brother of the craft, I most unfeignedly rejoice in making the acquaintance of a gentleman so distinguished in it as yourself. But that is not the feeling, sir, which principally leads me to tell you, that from this time forth I shall hold you as one of my most esteemed friends. You understand me? That lady, sir, pointing to Lady Clarissa, is a person whose lightest word ought to be law in this neighborhood, and to me is so.' If you publish any works, put Sir Matthew Dowling's name down, sir, for fifty copies. Should you find yourself at any time in want of a library, pray remember that there is one of no very small limits at Dowling Lodge. And your reception, sir, in my drawing-room and at my dinner-table, will ever be such as befits me to bestow on one honoured by the patronage of Lady Clarissa Shrimpton. Before this speech was quite finished, Lady Dowling, becoming rather fidgety, ventured to mutter something about its being far better to sit down to talk. But Miss Brotherton was greatly too much amused by what was passing to hear her. And for Miss Mogg to sit while her patroness stood was quite out of the question. So that Lady Dowling and the two eldest Miss Dowlings continued to stand like three finely dressed flaxen-headed statues to the end of it. Sir Matthew then led the high-born lady to a chair, While Miss Brotherton, perceiving that her conversation with the knight was now reduced to a whisper, and that consequently there would be no more fun in listening to it, condescended at last to answer a few of the amiable inquiries about her health, which were addressed to her by Mister Augustus and his two sisters. Meanwhile, the young Norval, with pensive eye intent on Nature's beauties, stole his way to the open window, and there having twice or thrice passed his fingers through his long locks, which descended in disordered curls almost to his shoulders, and, once and again buttoned and unbuttoned the broad shirt-collar which fell back, unrestrained by that most unintellectual ligature, a cravat, remained partly, it might be, to let the young ladies look at him, and partly to receive the fragrant breeze of summer upon his brow. It was now that Dr. Crockley felt he was called upon to do something that might bring him into notice, and, waddling up to the young poet, he addressed him with an air of incipient friendship which seemed to say, "'And I, too, am somebody,' You will find this neighbourhood not very prolific, young gentleman, in such gifts of intellect as a poet requires in order to be duly appreciated. Nevertheless, I will not deny that there is amongst us a knot, a little knot, Mr. Norval, whom, upon further acquaintance, you may find not altogether uncongenial. For myself, I may venture to say that I am as warmly devoted to every subject, directly or indirectly, connected with the divine, ethereal, immaterial, intellectual part of our composite formation as it is possible for a man to be, and it will give me pleasure, sir, to make your acquaintance. As this was spoken with energy, the sultry season made itself felt under the exertion, and Dr. Crockley found it necessary so far to remember the viler portion of his composite formation as to wipe his face and bald head assiduously. The poet bowed, but not as he had bowed to Lady Clarissa. Meanwhile, Lady Dowling, her light-coloured daughters, and Miss Mogg sat profoundly silent upon two chairs and one sofa of the splendid apartment. Miss Brotherton and Mr. Augustus continued to talk about nothing, and Sir Matthew and Lady Clarissa ceased not to mutter what none but themselves could hear upon an ottoman which stood in front of a distant window. If eye-beams could have interrupted a a tete-a-tete, theirs would not have long continued to proceed undisturbed for the mistress of Dowling Lodge did certainly cast not a few anxious glances towards the master of it. But it was not for that reason that he at length got up and rather hastily left the room. While all this was passing in the drawing-room, Martha Dowling and Michael Armstrong remained alone together in the dining-room. The flying pigeon, impelled by the beneficent Sir Matthew, having hit the forehead of his highly favoured protégé at the very moment that the larum, Announcing Lady Clarissa's arrival made itself heard, the greatly amused company left the room before it was possible to ascertain what would become of it. The child caught it ere came to the ground, but, having done so, held it by one leg with an air of very comical indecision, till Dr. Crockley, who respectfully walked the last out of the room, shut the door behind him. The eyes of the factory boy and the ugly girl then met. "'Come to the table, my dear,' said Martha." AND IF YOU LIKE THAT BIRD, EAT IT. HERE IS A PLATE AND KNIFE AND FORK FOR YOU. BUT IF YOU LIKE ANYTHING ELSE BETTER, LEAVE IT AND TELL ME WHAT YOU WILL HAVE. MICHAEL OPENED HIS MAGNIFICENT BLACK EYES AND LOOKED EARNESTLY AT HER. HE APPROACHED THE TABLE, LAID DOWN THE HALF-DISSECTED pigeon, BUT SAID NOT A WORD. YOU WOULD LIKE SOMETHING ELSE BETTER, WOULD YOU NOT, SAID MARTHA, SMILING AT HIM. I DON'T KNOW, ANSWERED MICHAEL, RETURNING THE SMILE. YOU DON'T KNOW? Cannot you tell what you should like? No, ma'am, if you please. I don't know what any of it is. My dear child, it is all very good, I believe, only you know some people like one thing, and some another. Little boys generally like something very sweet. Here is some cake. What do you say to that? I know what I should like best, said Michael. Do you? Then you shall have it, if you will tell me what it is. Something good for mother, said the child, blushing violently. BUT YOU MUST SEND ME, AND ORDER ME TO TAKE IT TO HER, OR ELSE IT WILL BE STEALING IT. VERY WELL, I WILL SEND SOMETHING TO HER, BUT YOU MUST EAT SOMETHING YOURSELF FIRST. WHAT SHALL IT BE, MICHAEL? THIS ARRANGEMENT SEEMED TO PUT THE BOY INTO A STATE OF PERFECT ECSTASY. HE CLAPPED HIS HANDS, RAISED ONE FOOT, AND THEN THE OTHER, WITH CHILDISH GLEE, AND EXCLAIMED IN AN ACCENT FROM WHICH ALL TIMIDITY HAD FLED, OH, DEAR, OH, DEAR, HOW NICE! WHAT, THE CAKE, OR THE GRAPES? "'Or what?' "'Taking it to mother, "'taking it to mother,' "'cried Michael. "'Then you love mother very much, Michael,' "'said Martha, drawing the child towards her, "'and kissing his smooth, dark forehead. "'Michael nodded his head "'and nestled closer to her. "'Well, then, never mind about the cake at present. "'But I must find a little basket, "'must I not? "'I will give you a basket "'if you will take care of it "'and bring it back to me, "'because perhaps we may want it again. "'There!' You may eat that if you are hungry, while I am gone away. I shall be back again in a minute." So saying, she placed some bread and meat before him and left the room. Michael had by no means lost his appetite by his morning walk to Oxley Lane, and being in excellent spirits to boot, he sat down and began to devour what had been set before him with very zealous eagerness. He had not, however, done one half of what he was capable of performing, when another door, opposite to the one by which Martha had made her exit, opened, and Sir Matthew Dowling walked in. Michael's knife and active fingers remained suspended midway between his mouth and the plate. The color forsook his cheek, and his eyes sunk as if unable to meet that of his munificent patron. "What stuffing still, you greedy little rascal? What have you touched with your nasty factory fingers? Not the grapes, I hope. Michael tried to say no, but did not succeed in producing the sound. So contented himself by letting the forefinger of his left hand drop into his plate to show how he had been engaged. "'Don't look so like a fool, you oaf,' said Sir Matthew, taking him by the shoulder and shaking him with some vivacity. "'You are to come along with me, do you hear that? And see a lot of fine folks, and to look up at them too, do you hear?' "'And by g. d. if you blubber or look grumpish, I'll have you strapped ten times over, worse than you ever saw done at the factory. Come along, and mind what I have promised, for I'll keep it, and worse, that you may rely. Michael behaved like a little hero. He remembered the promised basket and the voice that had told him he should have it. He remembered Hoxley Lane, too, and his mother and Teddy, and their morsel of dry bread. So he walked manfully along beside Sir Matthew, and when they reached the drawing-room door, and his benefactor stretched forth a hand to take his, he yielded it to him with scarcely any perceptible shudder. Sir Matthew walked some steps forward with the boy in his hand into the drawing-room, and then, standing quite still, pointed to the child and said, Lady Clarissa, behold the factory boy! Nothing could be more skilful than this form of presentation, for it told Lady Clarissa everything, and Lady Dowling nothing. Lady Clarissa sprung from her seat and ran towards the child. "'Is it possible?' she exclaimed with every appearance of violent emotion. "'Oh, Sir Matthew!' These last words were audible only to the knight and the little boy. But as the latter could make nothing of them, and the former almost anything he pleased, it was evident that the lady was as well skilled in saying more than met the ear as the gentleman. "'Indeed, indeed!' said Lady Clarissa, drawing forth another of the coroneted handkerchiefs. "'Indeed, indeed, this is a noble act, Sir Matthew.' Here her ladyship pressed her handkerchief to her eyes and remained in the eloquent silence of that position for a moment, then, raising herself from the softness that, as she hinted to Sir Matthew in a whisper, she felt stealing upon her, she called to Mr. Osmond Norville and said in a tone audible to all present, "'Osmond Norville, favorite of heaven and the muse, let not this beautiful subject escape you. Look at this pretty boy.' Look at the delicate air of aristocratic refinement which pervades his person. Osmond. the earth has not made her daily circuit round the sun since I beheld this child the very type of sordid wretchedness. Would you know the hand that wrought this wondrous change? Would you learn what heart suggested it? Behold them here. And Lady Clarissa laid her noble fingers on the coat-sleeve of Sir Matthew Dowling, "'Her ladyship does Sir Matthew Dowling no more than justice, Mr. Norville,' said Dr. Crockley, approaching the group. "'This is an act that ought to be given to fame, and, if Sir Matthew himself does not object to it, I would suggest it's being recorded by your pen in such a form as may give it general circulation.' The poet pressed his hand upon his heart and bowed profoundly, and then, raising the other hand to his forehead, he stood for some time silently meditating on the theme thus offered to him. During this interval, the different groups which surrounded him formed a most charming picture. The young man himself stood apart, and unconsciously, perhaps, became the centre to which every eye-beam converged. Lady Clarissa and Sir Matthew, side by side, and at no great distance from him, awaited his reply-her ladyship, with an affectionate smile on her lip, that spoke at once her confidence in his power and will to do what she required of him; Sir Matthew's expression of countenance could not be read so plainly. It was grave, but it might be doubtful whether its gravity proceeded from displeasure that the answer should be delayed, or solely from the deep interest the subject possessed for him. Lady Dowling, with her hands crossed before her, was seated on a sofa exactly in front of them, with her light eyes rather more widely open than usual, looking straight forward, and her small features seeming to indicate that she was not in the sweetest humor in the world." Dr. Crockley, his hands in his waistcoat pockets, and his short legs rather widely extended in what dancing matters term the second position, swayed himself with nice balance to and fro as if measuring the interval of suspense by seconds vibrated by his person. Miss Arabella Dowling and Miss Harriet Dowling sat close together upon an ottoman, like to a double cherry, of the bigero kind, with their four eyes so fixed upon the poet that it seemed as if they had put but one heart and one soul between them and on this subject at least their hearts and souls, if not one, were the same. For they had both, and at the very same instant, fallen violently in love with Mr. Osmond Norville. In a deep armchair, in which she had almost buried herself, sat, or rather lay, little Miss Brotherton, almost convulsed with laughter, and with her pocket-handkerchief by no means elegantly applied to her mouth, being nearly half of it within, in the hope of stifling at least the sound of her mirth, while Mr. Augustus lent in an attitude of very distinguished elegance on the back of her chair. A little behind her appeared Miss Mogg, who was in truth neither sitting nor standing, but perched very insecurely on the extreme edge of a couch, which uncomfortable attitude she had chosen from not feeling quite certain whether she ought to stand, like Lady Clarissa, or sit, like Miss Brotherton. The first, she feared, was too dignified and distinguished for her, the last too comfortable, and she deserved credit for hitting upon a position so far removed from either. And, lastly, very near the door by which he had entered and to which he had sunk back he knew not how, stood Michael. This picturesque state of things having lasted quite long enough, Osmond Norval raised his eyes from the ground to the face of Lady Clarissa, and, making a sudden step forwards, dropped on one knee and seized her hand. He attempted to speak, but for some time his voice appeared perfectly choked by emotion. At last, however, he recovered the power of articulation and said, "'Such a subject, oh heaven, at your bidding too! Best and dearest Lady Clarissa! Can you doubt that all my power and strength will be put in requisition for it? But, may I ask, is it to be published by subscription?' Without immediately replying to this interesting and to Mr. Osmond Norval most important inquiry, Lady Clarissa suddenly clapped her hands together with a sort of vehement enthusiasm that looked very like delirium. Even Sir Matthew, though his intimacy with her had more than once made him the witness to some extraordinary freaks, looked at her with astonishment. Lady Dowling's eyes were more widely open than ever. Miss Mogg instinctively thrust her hand into her bag in search of a smelling-bottle, "'and Miss Brotherton took her handkerchief out of her mouth "'and looked grave. "'I have got it! Oh, I have got it!' she exclaimed. "'What a delicious idea! Let us sit down. "'Mog, push forward that couch, child. "'Poor girl! She really is almost too fat to move. "'Gracious heaven, Sir Matthew! "'What would become of my etherealized spirit "'if it were so encumbered? "'But sit down, sit down, all of you. "'Norval, place yourself on that tabouret.' "'Mary Brotherton, draw near and listen. "'And all the rest of you give ear "'to what I am going to say, "'and answer the questions I shall ask "'with freedom and sincerity.' "'Thus conjured, everyone in the room "'except Lady Dowling, who stirred not an inch, "'drew round the place where Lady Clarissa "'had seated herself, and prepared "'with considerable curiosity to hear "'what she was going to say. "'Is not amusement the very soul of life?' "'She began. "'No doubt of it, my lady.' from the lips of Dr. Crockley, was the most articulate of the many acquiescent answers which followed. "'Is not a country neighbourhood fearfully, lamentably deficient in this?' pursued the animated inquirer. "'There cannot be two opinions on that point,' replied Sir Matthew with authority. "'And is it not the duty of neighbours, residing within reach of each other as we do, to exert every facility with which nature has endowed them?' IN ORDER, AS MUCH AS POSSIBLE, TO SOFTEN TO EACH OTHER THE PRIVATIONS TO WHICH THEIR DISTANCE FROM THE METROPOLIS OBLIGES THEM TO SUBMIT. IN REPLY TO THIS DEMAND THERE WAS A PERFECT CLAMOUR OF APPROBATION. WELL, THEN, CONTINUED LADY CLARISSA, IF SUCH BE YOUR FEELINGS, I AM CERTAIN OF SUCCESS IN THE PROJECT THAT HAS COME LIKE A SPIRIT OF LIGHT borne UPON SILVER WINGS TO VISIT MY DULL SPIRIT. "'This noble act of Sir Matthew's must not pass away like an ordinary deed "'that is hardly performed ere it be forgotten. "'No. It shall live in story. It shall live in song. "'It shall live again in action. Norval, dear gifted friend, did you ever write a drama?' "'Occasionally a scene or two, Lady Clarissa.' "'That is enough, dear Osmond. I ask not a hackneyed, worn-out pen.' I will relate to him, Sir Matthew, this interesting anecdote exactly as it occurred. He shall dramatize it. Perhaps introduce an episode or underplot to increase the business of the scene. We will all act it. And here Lady Clarissa gracefully bowed to the whole party. And all the neighborhood shall be assembled to enjoy the fete. What say you to this, Sir Matthew?' "'Upon my word, my lady,' I think it is one of the cleverest and most agreeable ideas that ever entered a lady's head. If you and Mr. Norval will arrange the drama, Lady Clarissa, I will take care to have one of the rooms fitted up as a theatre, and depend upon it we shall be in no want of actors. Upon my word, I never liked an idea so much in my life. "'Will it not be pleasant, Mary Brotherton?' said Lady Clarissa, in her most caressing tone, to the heiress. "'Very pleasant indeed,' replied the young lady. "'I should ask no better fun.' "'And what does my lady Dowling say?' resumed Lady Clarissa, with that stiffness of manner which with her ladyship now and then refreshed the memory of her plebeian friends as to the difference of rank between them. "'Oh, dear me, I am sure I don't know,' replied Lady Dowling, looking frightened. "'Well, we must not torment Lady Dowling by forcing her to act, Sir Matthew.' THERE CANNOT BE A DOUBT THAT WE SHALL HAVE VOLUNTEERS IN ABUNDANCE. YOU WILL ACT, MARY BROTHERTON, WILL YOU NOT? ACT? MOST ASSUREDLY I WILL ACT, LADY CLARISSA, REPLIED THE heiress. PEOPLE AS MUCH AT LIBERTY TO PLEASE THEMSELVES AS I AM, SELDOM refuse TO AID AND ABET A SCHEME SO EXCEEDINGLY FULL OF AMUSEMENT AS THIS SEEMS TO BE. WE WILL SET SUCH AN EXAMPLE, CRIED DR. CROCKLEY, RUBBING HIS HANDS JOYOUSLY, THAT EVERY COUNTY IN ENGLAND SHALL HEAR OF US WITH ENVY. I know what Sir Matthew can make of a thing if he takes to it. Leave him alone for giving the go-by to all the world. Right away, young gentlemen, right away. Depend upon it, you'll have a theatre and actors too. That will do you justice. At this interesting moment, just as the fair-haired Miss Dowlings began to whisper to each other something about characters and dresses... And, Mr. Augustus, to whisper to Miss Brotherton his hope that he should have to act a great deal with her, the great bell sent forth another peal, upon which Lady Clarissa held up her finger in a token of silence. And before the new visitor entered, all the bright sallies of the party were as effectually extinguished as if they had been supplied by gas, which was suddenly turned off. End of Chapter 6